My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. Today I am joined by Kwamurai, or Professor Dr. Kashiwaji uh, Esquire. Is that relatively good pronunciation? Yes, I got my uh, I got my doctorate in in education from the University of Delaware. It's the uh, alma mater of of Dr. Jill Biden, and uh, I also uh, am a professor there. That's incredible. So that's that's the source of all of my titles. It's it's I am honored to to share a Zoom uh, Zoom meeting with someone of your caliber. Um, obviously, the most credentialed person here and. The most credentialed person who'll ever probably grace this podcast. So thank you very much for for joining us today. My pleasure. Perfect. So um, you know, joking aside, credentials aside, um, I am really happy that you're here because you are one of my favorite posters within OA, and um, you have been really killing it recently on Twitter. And I really wanted to chat to you because I feel like you're someone who's got. Um, who really does feel the pulse of these uh, highly mold buggy in times. And I think it's a, it's a good time to be chatting to you because your diagnoses uh, are, um, I feel, spot on. So, man, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm recording this, you know, maybe what, it's been a week since the Capitol, you know, debacle. Um, yeah, not even. Yeah. And shit has gone down. It feels like shit is going down in, in massive ways. Um, power is parading around naked in, in all its glory, uh, laughing in the faces of its enemies. And, um, it's, uh, what a time to be alive. <laughs> like, I'm, um, it's, it's exciting. It's terrifying. I've had to lock my account because I didn't want to deactivate, but it's, um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's been a bit stressful, I have to say. I know how. What's your What's your temperature at the moment? How are you feeling about this? I think I'm feeling cautiously optimistic, actually. Um, now you know I'm not I'm not out there with my face and everything, and uh, we'll we'll see if it stays that way. I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, power, maybe all these companies are going to start doxing their people. I don't know if that would be even out of the realm of imagination at this point, but just looking at things as they are, um, power really is uh, revealing itself, as as you said, and I think that they are just massively overplaying their hand. I don't know if that's exactly the right way to put it, because I'm not sure that there's anyone who they're really competing with, so they can, they can do what they want, um, and there's not going to be pushback immediately. But you just see how they're reacting to this in the most sort of insane ways. Not just banning Trump, but I mean, coming out and just this conspiracy of all of the different platforms to get rid of Parler, for instance. And you see these, these hit pieces online where, uh, where they're, they're talking about Parler and the images they're using have like straight up swastikas on them as if this is kind of the essence of it. 
Now I'm not I'm not a part of Parlor personally. I never have been. Uh, it seemed like a, a bit of a honeypot to me. You had Republican senators on there, so it was something that I wanted to avoid. But uh, you know, whatever you think of Parlor, just using this as kind of a test case for for what power is going to be doing and is already doing, I think is is very illustrative. Um, but now you know they're coming out, they're cutting funding to the Republican senators, some of these companies, I think Citibank announced that they will be, I mean, I just, I hope this is the beginning, right? Because it would be great if, if banks and corporations cut funding to the Republican party. I mean, if, if we can get to a sort of explicit one party state, that is, I think a step in the right direction for, for a number of reasons. Yeah. That's the, that's the turning point. And I mean, that's, that's kind of when, you know, a reaction is inevitable. I mean, I think that the capital was some form of reaction, some, the most, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of conspiracies and a lot of ideas about what, you know, what might have set off these, these people, but um, it was probably not the best move, or maybe, maybe it was in kind of an accelerationist perspective, like you said, you know, it's, it was the best move, because it really made power say, oh, perfect we've got we've got our you know our reichstag uh, excuse and now we're gonna yeah. we're gonna crack down yeah i think i think that with the options we had on the table um i think the best case scenario would have been if we could have gotten trump in sort of whatever whatever capacity we imagine that it doesn't have to be winning the election but if if he had been able to stay in power i think that would have been good for us i think Buying time is better. But uh, if that wasn't going to be the case, I think that an acceleration like what we're seeing is absolutely better than going back to the status quo of inner party, outer party, uh, Democrat, Republican dynamics. Um, you, you saw Joe Biden, maybe. There was this video of him going around doing his address from the, the podium of the office of president-elect or whatever, which, which he's been doing. And uh, in between um, discussing what his granddaughters told him about uh, how a Black Lives Matter mob would have been treated much more horribly and how his uh, plans for the new administration are basically to give funding to everyone except uh, white male-owned businesses, he dropped the idea that he needed a strong Republican Party. He needed a strong opposition. This was something that was very important to him. And I think it's tempting to read this as kind of a piece of liberal rhetoric, a piece of democratic rhetoric, sort of trying to capture um, something in the old American civic religion that, well, we need to have this competition of ideas, you know, the, the, the marketplace of ideas. This is what the battle of ideas, huge win in the battle of ideas, is, as Dave Rubin says. But I think that much, much more, a much more accurate way to read that is that Joe Biden's quite serious. I mean, I don't know that he has independent thought for himself, but in terms of what he said there, and in, he he was really revealing something about how, how power functions. Power does need a Republican Party, and they do need a Republican Party that is plausibly strong enough to make it look like there is a real competition going on. They need an outer party. That's how the system has functioned until now. It, it has been built on the premise of an inner party and an outer party. And accelerating into a one-party state, which everyone is aware of, and everyone is aware that everyone else is aware of, and so on to, you know, however many N 
take steps, that it is true, truly public knowledge, this is going to require um, a lot of changes in how power operates. And those might be bad in the short term in various ways for us, but in the long term, it's a much, much stronger position, I hope. Yeah, I mean, my my fear is that they are so good and so practiced at constructing this narrative and, and creating their boogeymen. And, um, you know, even in the absence of, of you know, governmental, uh, uh, you know, the, the outer party and in, in, in the government, the, the specter of, of Nazism and, you know, the, the, the boogeyman of, I don't know, the Proud Boys or whatever, whatever specter they are, they're conjuring right now is enough to keep people's imaginations inflamed. I mean, I, I talk to people, you know, who you know, sometimes ask me about my opinion and I don't, I don't really give my honest opinion that, that much, that freely. Um, no, don't, don't. Do <laughs> no, no. I, they might be, they might be able to find your YouTube channel, right? Exactly. I mean, if you want my honest opinion, guys, <laughs> sign up, subscribe, Patreon. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the feeling is that, you know, there's, there was a Nazi in, in the, in the White House and, you know, good people around the world have, have come together and, you know, they ousted him. And I feel like that's kind of the, the normie temperature at the moment. Um, you know, but this is obviously I'm I'm outside of the U.S. You know, this is kind of the you know the mirror of a mirror of a mirror of people seeing what's going on. Um, but you know, I don't know is is the same the case you know in in your circles or is it uh, are people a bit more um, awake to what's going on? I think that as with Trump and as with a lot of the coronavirus stuff, a lot more people are kind of sensitive to what's going on than maybe you would at first um, suspect looking at just kind of media representations and even looking at something like Twitter where outside of our sphere, the stuff that gets promoted and trends really does lean pretty heavily toward institutional power. Um, I do differ a little bit with, I think, um, what, what Moldbug has been writing recently uh, about about how he hopes this is going to play out, because his hope is that eventually, I think this is going to look very um, this is going to look very false. That we're going to get to a point of sort of late Soviet. The the analogy he makes is sort of Biden to to Brezhnev, right? That this is going to look implausible. That no one's going to be able to have faith in the system anymore, and that that's going to be ultimately how it gives way. But um, I'm not sure I quite agree with that because, you know, as you, as you say with the Proud Boys and so on, it looks absurd to us, but even without an actual riot in front of the Capitol, this idea that the system's narrative is going to give way sort of depends on the idea that people are living in reality and are sensitive to how power actually functions. And I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. I don't think people really do live in reality. I think that um, ultimately, if it gives way, it's going to be from the system and the people running it, deciding that they are just going, they, they, they feel like they have the ability or the moral duty or, or just the opportunity to kind of dunk on their enemies and punish them. And that this is going to, once it reaches enough tens of millions of people really going to cause uh, a pushback in a way that they aren't able to handle. But I think that on a narrative level, 
alone, that's not going to be how it goes. This is actually a little bit more pessimistic than what uh, than what Moldbug is saying because, you know, I think the difference between between where he is right now and where I am right now is that he seems to think the narrative will look plainly false, whereas I don't see a reason why the system can't continue to conjure Charlottesville every three months if it so desires. Yeah, especially... I don't think it, it doesn't need very many people. It doesn't even need any people. I mean, you can have everyone be actors. I think this is this is the 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 antidote that postmodernism provides to to this idea that narrative somehow has to be anchored to truth in any in any sense. Exactly, and I mean the the closer we are to pod life, and God damn it, they they really they really managed to to herd everyone into the pod this year. Um, the the more realistic the scenario is, I mean the 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 physically distant the more physically distant you are from from base reality the easier it is to create these you know hyper real scenarios these non-events these pseudo events um and yeah and just guide the narrative um but yeah i mean to be honest i think your your predictions probably or your assessment is probably closer to the truth because as far as i know they're they're really cooking cooking legislation now to to declare half the country um what was it uh, domestic terrorists um so i think you know going after their enemies is, is is reaching scale at the moment yeah i'm not i'm not sure if this was true i didn't i didn't look too deep, deeply into it but last night i saw a suggestion that there might be legislation to declare MAGA rallies um domestic terrorist events mm-hmm. yeah that which was it. i i'm not sure it, I'm not sure if that's something that's actually in the works, or even if it is, whether it has any sort of chance of, of being implemented. But this is the kind of thing which, if implemented, I think, is sort of unequivocally good, because it, it, it just shows the system, just within a week of this one event happening, which is, I guess, I mean, let's let's be honest, it it was significant on a symbolic level, but... Very few people were killed relative to, you know, the riots we saw last summer, say. Um, and actually one of the people who was killed was, was one of the rioters. I'm not sure if any rioters last summer were killed, but what did they do? I mean, they milled about in the Capitol. They stole some shit. They, they rearranged some furniture. They trashed it. It was bad on a symbolic level, but this was one event, one day, one place. It was not nationwide. It was not sponsored by elites. Of course, that's why they're freaking out about it. Um, but sort of the reaction to this, they can't help themselves from spinning out of control. It's just accelerated so much. If they declare MAGA rallies, domestic terrorist events, I mean, we're talking about a dude who, who, who tens of millions of people voted for. I mean, the most votes of any Republican presidential candidate in history and declaring these people domestic terrorists, it really does, I think, it, it means that people lose faith in the system. It means that people um, no longer have any investment in the system. And that's when you start to see real change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've actually written on this uh, yesterday. It's just the the idea that, in a way, exit for people, at least for temporarily or finding a way to not necessarily be dependent on a system that feeds off of your every move 
because you know you are kind of the the incarnation of evil of whatever you do whichever direction you move in um is is not good you know this this whole you know just flailing about and and you know going out in the street and screaming is is not it's not it's not a good move you know you just game theoretically you're you're in a corner at the moment so you kind of have to let the game play out um and you know try to make a life that's maybe i don't know not parallel to the system but you know in a, in a way you know try to make your dependencies a bit a bit lower um because right. I think, yeah i think getting the getting the boomers to lose faith and voice that was a huge task right because the boomers i think arguably grew up in the it's arguably the generation which is sort of the most voice-centered of of any in American history. I mean, you could argue maybe that the founding generation where people were actually very sensitive to the, the Constitution as it was set up, people were actually involved. It was working on kind of the local level that it was initially conceived at and, and wasn't layered with all of these other things. Maybe, maybe you could argue something there, but the boomers... Even if, if you look at something like Q, even, right, this is something I was discussing with people the other day, um, Q, QAnon, it's, it's this very kind of boomer-centric mythology when, when compared with something even like, like Pizzagate. It's this very, the way that the conspiracy theory even functions as a narrative is, is as like a serialized television show, basically. Like, People wait for the next post from Q that explains everything that came previously. It's not kind of hidden and DIY. It's not sort of, it, it's coming in linear fashion. You look at something like Pizzagate even, and Pizzagate is hardly the, the most sort of, I, I'm not, I'm not a, a Pizzagate truther exactly, but even if you look at something like Pizzagate, a lot of the parts here are hidden and they have to be kind of discovered through piecing together things that no one is telling you up front. And the whole aesthetic of it is one of, of sort of secret societies. Um, it's plugged into the inter internet. It's, it's interlinked. People are doing the investigation themselves. QAnon, it's, it's the boomers listening and waiting for the next iteration of the narrative to come out week by week. Um, and and the things that came before don't even really have to be consistent. It's not um, it's not even the sort of high fidelity television shows that you look at in in Netflix dramas, which can be binged all at once. It's just it's Boomer Vision. It's classic Boomer Vision. I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I think I think that this is sort of in some sense analogous to to what we're talking about here with voice and exit and that the boomers really are invested in this idea that they have a say within the system and this is how they grew up and this is the spirit of the 60s it's all about voice and i think i think you're very right that exit is is becoming more and more not just appealing but necessary in light of all of these things and if 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 that can be something that becomes appealing even to boomers then that's a huge victory because they they were going to be some of the hardest people to win over yeah i mean it's uh you know 
I, I, I hear it. I hear it even from, you know, like when, when my mom starts, starts asking about Bitcoin, I know, I know it's getting through. And my mom's not even in the US, you know, she's in, she's in Romania. So she's, um, and she's asking about it because she's like, hmm, you know, where, um, where was my money safe? You know, the world is a, is a weird place at the moment. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely getting through. Um, my, my theory is that boomers just maybe not, don't have the, you know, just the, the tech knowledge to effectively execute on, on this, but it might be, you know, this might be a good, a good startup for someone to, you know, to launch, to introduce uh, boomers to exit. Um, I'm sure there are people working on this as we speak. They don't, right. But the, the fact that they are often, uh, poorly plugged into technology is, is also an advantage in, in that they aren't dependent on, um, sort of being connected at scale in the way that maybe you and I are even, uh, a boomer who can, act, a boomer might be able to go off grid in a, in a real sense, in a way that would be very daunting to someone who, who grew up completely plugged in. Um, if you, if you went to a lifestyle where you lived more or less like, uh, a lot of these boomers lived in their, in their childhoods where they didn't have mobile phones. Um, they might not even have had television. I mean, they probably had television. They certainly had radio, but it just wasn't quite as central to their lives. It wasn't necessarily something that they could log into on demand, right? I mean, if you wanted to watch TV or listen to a radio program, it was something which you had to do not on your own time. You, you had to, you had to uh, organize your life around um, the broadcaster and sit down at a particular time of day to watch whatever you wanted to watch. This is just unimaginable to us, but to them, maybe maybe they still have this kind of this kind of more primitive mind that that. Uh, and I don't mean that in in a negative way. I mean it in a very positive way. Um, they are just perhaps less mind hacked by by technology than than we are growing up immersed in this bath of constant stimulus. And if that if going off grid is what's necessary, they might be uh, some of the best people to do it. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I I hope you're right. There's a, there's quite the addictive potential for for Netflix and Facebook in this demographic. I mean, uh, most most boomers that I know are very much addicted to their phones. Re very recently, but uh, you know, it's uh it's quite a bad thing if if the Wi-Fi is uh, Wi-Fi is out at uh, at. Uh... They're all on Facebook. We that's why we don't see them because we don't hang out on Facebook. But that's that's their platform, right? Yeah, and that's why I think Q is is super big on Facebook, or at least used to be. I don't know exactly if they're allowed to to frolic anymore. Yeah, I doubt it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm. It's it's hard to make predictions and also hard to make recommendations for people. Um, I just you know my um my recommendation is essentially to to adopt a little bit of a prepper mindset and you know try to be ready for whatever happens and you know just sharpen your skills and also realize that a lot of the stuff that's been memed into you as a need is not really a need you know like you know i don't think you know a lot of people are gonna you know be wanting for for food and shelter and things like that anytime soon but um i think a lot of people bow to a lot of you know unnecessary things because they they just, you know, have all these marketing memes in their head that they need to take, you know, a two week vacation and, you know, need to do all the all sorts of stuff that, 
you don't really need it doesn't really affect your 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 happiness that much so you know just kind of readjust and try to and try to straighten out your um your core self and just be you know be the best person you can be this is eh. this is why i try to stay off of uh of instagram and, and even tiktok and it's why i prefer twitter is because i feel uh i feel that this this marketing of lifestyle and identifying yourself through products is is perhaps much less prominent at least where we're hanging out on twitter uh, and people are discussing topics whereas you look around and you watch any commercial or or show or whatever and you can really see that the way they're selling you everything is just by they're selling you it as as part of a complete identity um you can even think about kind of this this reddit style man um i don't know if this is still kind of the popular thing but certainly back back when i browsed reddit almost a decade ago there was this aesthetic of like the manly man the art of manliness thing where it was this kind of this this early 20th century kind of kind of look almost quasi steampunk maybe where they were very excited about sort of styling their beards and getting or getting straight razor shaves or whatever all of this kind of thing but it 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 was all about selling people products to become this kind of art of manliness kind of dude you were going to adopt that aesthetic and that narrative identity so that you could convince yourself that you were one of these guys and that's that's how that's how the marketing works now right it's aspirational um it's not functional and it's absolutely true that demand uh responds to supply in 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 as as much as supply responds to demand right this is a two-way street exactly and you know the the second um you know the the market has crossed uh, the boundary between you know needs like you know shelter food all this stuff and moved it into into a place where they can create products that tickle your like uh your sense organs with like super normal stimuli like i don't know like food is hyper palatable porn is hyper present and you know it's, it comes at you from every direction whatever like fringe fetish you might have um everything is kind of pushed to the maximum at the at the point where um you know it's just everything's overstimulation so you're not even a consumer of this product it's not even a need you're an addict you're a straight straight to addiction because we're not built for this type of overstimulation and um you know i, I don't really want to be hooked up to an app like you said like instagram that feeds off my addiction to i don't know high status lifestyles because i don't know i, I really want a man that's a provider and i don't want my children to starve because that's like my little module in my head that's been built in by evolution and i really have to watch these these pictures of high status lifestyles for three hours a day because you know that are interspersed with various uh, various products that i might want to buy to imitate this lifestyle it's um it's it's quite i don't know it's quite dystopian because i also see it in myself like whenever i get on instagram i always want to buy something there's always some something they're shilling it's always some way i kind of rationalize why i actually need it and yeah i think the the best the best thing to do is exit it's it's an interesting thing so you you were you were uh advice for a while is that right 
Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I, I had, I had kind of a new atheist style, um, kind of a debunking column in, in the Romanian version of Vice. And I was kind of like a, a columnist for them. I was like, I don't know, debunking astrology and stuff like that. Um, and it was fun, but I was never like, um, you know, like a, I don't know, reporter or anything. It was just kind of an opinion column. Okay, so you, you were in the you were doing the Romanian version of Vice because I yeah. you know I have this this idea of Vice and Vice has Vice has changed over the years obviously, um, certainly back from when I guess it was founded by Gavin McInnes is that right I mean it's 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 gone from more serious stuff to less serious stuff even, um, yeah. but I don't know what was the Romanian version kind of a little bit less caricatured than than the American or, or just Anglosphere versions of Vice were? It was it was essentially pretty similar. Like Vice is, is almost a franchise. Um, it, it, there's a recipe. They give you kind of this gonzo journalism booklet that about their voice and their style and stuff like that. Um, why I wanted to write for them was because I um, it was the only kind of edgy publication in Romania at the time. It was like Western. It, it wanted to publish like, you know, edgier voices. And yeah, I had a, I was in an edgy phase and no one else wanted to write about like, you know, the new atheist stuff that I was interested in back then. So they were like, yeah, you can write for us. Um, but outside of that, to be honest, I wasn't really aware of the, of the cult of Vice that much, you know, right probably two weeks before I joined Vice, a friend of mine showed me the Vice magazine and I was like, wow, because they, they had hard copy back then, even in Romania. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, this is, this is an edgy magazine. Um, so yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, the reason, the reason I, the reason I asked about that and the reason it came to mind is just because Vice seems to be the marketing of an identity, a, a niche identity on, on a similar level to that we were talking about. And maybe, maybe in a more text-based form even, but this idea of, the aspirational, um, I don't know, Brooklyn hipster identity, uh, where you're you're constantly doing all of these crazy things. You know, the the acquisition of experiences. This is the big the big thing that people talk about, and this I suspect has been something that was pushed by uh, marketing firms once they realized that uh, millennials weren't ultimately going to be owning anything in the form of uh, even property that they could they could at least acquire experiences and that there were arbitrage opportunities here in the form of even while say property and education and healthcare costs were going up something like travel costs were going down relative to several generations ago and so being able to get this class of people who are largely renters in other respects to embrace the identity of someone who acquires experiences in the forms of travel and you know various culinary things and 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 novel sexual experiences this was really going to be the millennial identity and i think that looking at vice you really see this this idea of the experience collector um the only analogy i can draw this is sort of a weird thing and it's not a reference that many people will get but there's this uh there's this there's this video game from from a couple decades ago called Planescape Torment, which is a, a a classic video game. I don't know that I would recommend people play it because the gameplay is kind of shitty. But there's this group in that game called the Sensates, and this is sort of a guild of people who just go around and try to collect 
the the most novel experiences available and they store them all in these crystals and 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 these people just live in this palace and and experience all sorts of different things through crystals and it doesn't even have to be good you know the experience of dying or being tortured at at some point becomes a high value experience because ultimately this is just this is this is where people are at it's 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 gotten to the point where everything else is so boring that all they want to do is experience something that they haven't seen before even if there's no real stakes involved and that kind of feels like like the vice mentality i don't know if i don't know if you you know i don't know what your history is but you know i i i want i just i'm interested to hear about this because and i'm not i'm not judging either i mean even the new atheist stuff right this is a very kind of unpopular thing in our sphere but one of one of the unpopular opinions i've stated before is that i haven't really gotten on board with a lot of the uh conversion to catholicism or, or orthodox christianity stuff not because i think it's stupid or rejected but just because i honestly haven't been able to get on board with it i'm still attached to kind of the the arguments tragically speaking uh that that were so um convincing back in the day these these new atheist things i i i i'm trapped in this worldview where i i really can't convince myself of of deep religious enchantment so it's not it's not something that i'm asking you about in order to judge i'm just i'm just interested in hearing about the transition there because i think it's it's something that actually probably allows us to appreciate the wisdom of a lot of what people talk about in this sphere now more than maybe people who were never on the other side of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I also have like a a, de a degree in gender studies or kind of like um um it's called oh, really? I didn't know that. A diversity management. So, I mean Diversity management. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, a major in diversity management. Um so I mean, I've I've Does kind diversity of... mean the same thing. Um Yeah, it's about 90%, you know, like Judith Butler style feminism. It's probably one of the hardest subjects that I had to study for an exam for because we had all of these um, um, just like papers. There weren't any books. There wasn't anything written up, but all these like social science papers that we had to learn and we had to, you know, you know, not only read the abstract, know, know about how this sample was made because it really wanted to have this air of science. They really pushed the science angle. And I remember like just like studying for like a month to just remember who wrote the stereotype threat article and, you know, all this stuff that's now been completely you know, thrown out the window because of the replication crisis. Um, so it's, you know, it, it was it was really interesting. And it really did meme me into I, I wasn't even, you know, very much a feminist before I went to college. And then because uh, I went to kind of economics, and I had kind of this business element to it. Um, and diversity management was one of the things and you know, they really wanted me to, to go do that because it was an up and coming thing. So I just kind of dropped into diversity management. And then I got memed into all this, you know, extreme feminist stuff, because because, you know, if you read the literature on stereotype threat and you see that, you know, of course, girls are not very good in math because they're, I don't know, panicked about math or something like that, they're primed, um, you, you kind of, you know, 
you read enough of that and you're like, oh my God, you know, the world, the world is a terrible place and I am uniquely, uh, uniquely affected. Um, and, you know, there was a little bit about disability and the diversity management, but I would say it was like a solid 90 to 95% just pure feminism. Um, and then obviously after college, I hit the real world and I read a bit more and then I kind of mean myself out of it. But uh, I think it was a necessary stage. And I think I was still kind of in that mindset when I started uh, collaborating with Vice. And it was, yeah, it was it was essentially the cool, the cool vibes that you had, especially if you're in Romania, there's there are very few things that are cool. And most most cool things are Western. And if you can belong to, to kind of that that um, mimetic sphere of being one of the Western voices that, you know, speaks in a Western manner and does the Western cool things, then that's, uh, you know, and Vice was top of top of the heap for that, you know. Even even doing something so Western as storming the capital, I think, uh, tends to be a popular thing among the American elites when Eastern Europeans do it. Um, of course. <laughs> but... Um, that's interesting, though, because you you seem to say that this was uh, mostly mostly feminism based. Because I I would have it, I guess that in Eastern Europe you don't have kind of the same racial dynamics at play, so the whole kind of race idolatry thing wouldn't be quite as available. Except possibly, I mean, I I'm not sure what is what is the sort of state of progressive politics there with respect to like the gypsy population, because that seems like the most most evident. Uh, possible grounds for introducing the, the sort of racial hierarchy that is, I would say, much more um, prominent as as sort of a progressive thing in, in the West than feminism is. I mean, you know, feminists are very much kind of second-class citizens relative to racial minorities in, in the United States. And I think it, it has yet to be settled how... Uh, the transgender population is going to fit into this puzzle, but I mean, is is this is this something that you saw in Romania? Yeah, I mean, you know, feminism wasn't even a subject when I was growing up. Like, I was kind of, you know, I was the first atheist, the first feminist, the first everything that anyone have, had ever heard of in my little town, um, and I was here to to tell people about it. But um, it's it. You know, it it was. I think it was kind of a necessary stage because there was there there was some you know some you know gender dynamics that were a bit a bit hardcore here that needed a bit of questioning and um, but at the same time, um, the problem with Romania is that it's always downstream from the West and where <clears throat> you can imagine Romania as being maybe I don't know ten years behind some place like Germany um, and also maybe twenty years behind the most progressive place in, in America. But because of the internet, things are really speeding up now. So you you see BLM marches in Romania, obviously on a very small scale, but uh, a lot of these mind viruses that exist in the West they're kind of seeping through here as well. Um, and they're not, um, they're, they're a bit dissonant to, to what's going on here. It doesn't really make sense because essentially the BLM riots here, um, they're not riots, they're protests, they're actually protests, just some kids in the street. But they're not talking about the gypsy population. They're talking about hands up, don't shoot, and <laughs> Michael Brown and stuff. Is, and, this, is this the kind of thing where you will, um, you'll, have, you'll have Europeans who, who get very sort of sanctimonious about discussing the plight of the American black population, but then... When you bring up the gypsy topic, they're they're sort of they're much more uh, hard nosed about it. Let's say, if not if not outright red pilled. 
Yeah, I think people are. That's that's the thing here. Like people are, are still pretty red pilled about about the gypsy question because you know the the, the contrast here between um, the Romanian population and the gypsy population is that they really do live separate lives. They live in enclaves. You know, they ha they have a separate language. Um, it's it's quite different. And also, one thing that's really changed the dynamic a lot because I remember when I was growing up, the, the tensions were much. They were heated. There was even more, in a way, more discourse about. <clears throat> about integration, you know, there's a lot of friction between the two communities. Uh, but then the uh, the doors opened. <laughs> there's no there's no more, you know, you didn't have to stay in Romania anymore. And a lot, a lot of the gypsy population left. So, you know, the, the tension subsided because most of most of the gypsy people that, you know, were here 10, 15 years ago are now in Italy, they're in France, they're in Germany, you know, whatever trading <laughs> trading their wares or doing whatever um and they're not our problem anymore so you know it's it's easy to not have ethnic conflict when one ethnicity just opted out of everything well gypsies gypsies might be the uh, the ultimate nrx population and they they truly have embraced and and embodied the idea of exit beyond anyone else exactly they're, that's that's your stick man the, the <laughs> The thing they've pulled off, which I think we have to figure out how to pull off, is um, is just uh, having the government be uh, willing to let you do it. Yeah, I think at one point the government was willing to to let them do most things. I think it, the the repression of gypsies, you know, it's, it's been a long. There's a long history with in Romania, obviously, because you know there used to be there used to be a slave population, very similar in a way to to the American blacks, um, but. You know, during communism and right after the the Iron Curtain fell, there was still quite you know obvious repression. There was a lot of you know power in the state to say you know this is your spot, you don't move. Uh, but then when we wanted to become closer to Europe, the demand was to integrate, and that's when when stuff started you know becoming a bit harder because you know you didn't have the iron hand of the state putting people in their little separate boxes. Um, you had to you know, smile at the European Commission because they, you know, you wanted to be part of this this money family uh, and get your cut. And um, I think a lot of stuff happened at, in, in those years. That that was kind of, I feel, the, the most tense uh, time between the two communities. But then, you know, our, the problem kind of solved itself. And now, to be honest, recently, I haven't really heard much about about it. And just, you know, you know, through my lying eyes, I can see that the, the population of, of, of Roma here is, is much reduced to what it was when I was younger. Are you, oh, are you still in, are you still in Romania? I thought yeah. you were in London for some reason. Um, I was in London until very recently. I mean, we moved away in the spring just kind of while coronavirus was precipitating and because um, we wanted to we wanted to move away from London for a long time. I mean, of just, you know, big, big city uh, decay. And I was like, yeah, don't, don't really need to fear for my life every day. So, um, yeah, we just we just moved moved away. I think it was beginning of March. Yeah, I, I like the UK in certain ways, but it, it does have um, certain uncanny valley dynamics to it. I'm not sure whether there's a a better way to describe what I'm getting at, but I think that in the US, at least, when you see kind of these run-down, um, decaying cities and, and sort of consumerism and advertising, it feels authentic in a way because the United States, you know, outside of 
the we we have the native populations right who were here but other than that the united states has always been kind of this this country which has had its identity uh borrowed from europe so so the sense there's there's never any problem where that has to sort of coexist alongside these ancient and respectable um icons of culture but when you go to the united kingdom and you see these sort of advertising campaigns that are aping american sort of aesthetics and and um and these, these rundown sort of council houses and so on and they're they're right next to cathedrals that were built in the middle ages and even stuff like the houses of parliament that is um you know a lot a lot more recent but still sort of plays to this older european identity it, it just clashes in a way that's very unsettling in in my experience in no small part also because um everything's sort of produced a little bit more cheaply so it, it just looks very weird i don't know i i like i like certain things about the uk but this was always something which which made me feel like there was sort of some kind of uh deep horror to <laughs> to life there yeah i i mean I, th I think i think i know i know what you mean it's um it's it's you know the u.s is is the empire you can kind of see that here as well i mean i guess um having all the the u.s consumerism and all of the the product um and you know and and our history with with u.s you know cultural products is old like you know dallas was apparently tied to tied to the fall of the iron curtain because people could see how well people had it in in the u.s and they made a big mistake by by letting people watch it um you know it's you could see all these artifacts everywhere here and it, it might even be an even starker contrast between kind of you know decrepit old communist buildings and then you know having the the huge coca-cola billboard next to it um it's you know the U.S. is the empire, and it's you know we're all kind of just living living in the shade of it. That's why you know I'm, I'm so interested in what's going on because I know it's coming here and and very yeah very oh absolutely absolutely it's going to be. I mean one of the things that the people the elites in charge are so so horrified about is that this is um, something sort of happening at home and getting out of control at home and not in a serious way. I mean there wasn't going the government here was not going to be overthrown. It just it's much too durable for that even if these people had stayed there it's a little bit interesting to play with hypotheticals i mean i don't even sort of want to talk about it but if there had been sort of if if the mob had done certain things that were a lot more radical while they were in the capital let's just leave it at that then i wonder where we would be at today i mean i don't think again i i don't think the government was ever going to change but we might be in a very different situation um but yeah, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that they've exported elsewhere before, and it's just remarkable, right? I mean, getting back to the the history that we've borne witness to over the past week, it just really is remarkable the way in which the narrative is able to shift on shift on a dime just about about everything, because you have these chants, right, that everyone likes to do. This is what democracy looks like, right? We get the people out in the street. This is pure democracy. Protest is the most uh, the highest form of American democracy. This is kind of what everyone was saying up until this riot. And then all of a sudden, uh, we're not talking about abolishing the police anymore, are we? We're not talking about 
um, how protest is the highest form of democracy. We're certainly not hearing about how riots are the language of the unheard, right? This was a very popular uh, quotation, this Martin Luther King quotation that people were throwing around last summer, not to justify the riots, as they would always say, but of course, yes, to justify the riots. I mean, nothing else. That's that's what it means. Um, imagine if Donald Trump had just posted, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, riots are the language of the unheard. I mean, imagine if instead of tweeting his his calls for peace and for the rioters to leave the Capitol and so on, as he actually did before getting banned, uh, imagine if he had said riots are the language of the unheard. Um, there is just no, there's no consistency. And I'm not saying that to complain, you know, we're not saying that to complain. We, we understand that, um, we were never going to get consistency because, uh, we aren't sort of deluded about the system we live under in a way that I think, unfortunately, and, and, and quite sadly, a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol probably, probably were deluded about and are going to suffer as a result of, but it's a useful thing to point out, I think, to people in order to, to sort of show them this is, this is again getting back to the, to the, the NRX point is that people can't help but see this stuff, right? They can't help but see the way that the narrative just has no consistent content. The only consistency it has is, is the people in charge and the people out of power and the sort of religious rules that they, um, that they, that they run things according to. But beyond that, any specific content just, just goes out the window. And it's amazing. Usually it's so much more subtle. But to have someone like Mitt Romney of all people, you know, we, we have him doing it because John McCain is dead, but to have, have Mitt Romney of all people talking about how horrible it is that, that a mob would dare to, to storm the Capitol building. Um, these people have no compunctions about about order when it comes to when it comes to their enemies. The principles lie elsewhere. Exactly, and the the speed with which they've they shift gears like every day the narrative shifts, you know, ten degrees into into the extreme, and um, it's also also this you know recent spate of bannings uh, has been quite sobering. Um, you know, you know, Red Scare. Red Scare band. Yeah. yeah. Like, which is, I mean, it is essentially a, a left-wing podcast. You know, it's a very edgy left-wing podcast, but it's not. Well, know. it's it's a left-wing podcast, but I think that I think that there is sort of this is a useful a useful talking point, perhaps, for for us to use when we're trying to convince people on the left that what they're doing is going to come back to bite them eventually and and uh it's something that i think rhetorically they are attuned to this idea that well it starts out with the rightist but it comes for you eventually and it doesn't even take that long this is this is something that that can be convincing but it is true that even if there's sort of a superficial way in which um red scare is is on the other side uh, in a deeper way, they really are on the same side in that they're anti-establishment. I think that, I think that in the same way that we can look at how the policy positions shift, uh, from day to day by those in power, um, 
we can we can therefore see that sort of what matters and where the real battle lines do end up being drawn are are somewhere else. They're much more about people who are establishment versus non-establishment, people who don't buy the narrative as sort of something serious that they have to treat with as as something sacred. And if that's where the battle lines get drawn, then some someone like Amy Therese or people like the Red Scare Girls, people who uh, suffer a lot more under these censorship regimes, despite being sort of superficially on the left, uh, are are allies um, in a way that certainly an establishment conservative type would not be, despite being sort of nominally closer to where a lot of us are on various policy issues. Because what we do see is that is that policy, um, in a principled sense, is not what matters. Policy as a tool for uh, immiserating one's foes and rewarding one's allies is is what matters. Exactly, yeah. This is, I feel like if, if people hadn't heard of Carl Schmidt until this week, they, they probably um, got a crash course, or at least they should. Um, because, you know, the, the friend-enemy distinction has never been clear. It's, uh, and especially from, you know, from, from this side, or if you're even like a centrist, it's impossible to not look at what's going on and see, see anything. But um, we are going to vanquish you. You are nothing. And right. right. And the friend-enemy distinction, too, I mean, stuff is known prior to any rhetoric, right? Like, people get banned. If you look at, I mean... People can look at Trump, and Trump's tweets did not contain anything that was inciting. But I think it's it's certainly fair to say that, but for what Trump did, the mob would not have stormed the Capitol. I don't think that that's that's um, a radical statement. I don't think it's it's a betrayal to say that. I mean, he got them emotionally riled up. Did what he did uh, amount to incitement as a crime? No, I don't think I would say it did. But you know. You, you have a mob there and you use certain rhetoric and there's some things that you can kind of reasonably expect, you know, fair enough. Trump, you know, was it, was it irresponsible? Well, this is, this is kind of the rhetoric of the enemies. Was it good or bad? I mean, this is, this is a lot of questions, but whatever he did, you know, it wasn't on Twitter, but you look at someone like Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn wasn't even at the rally, right? But Michael Flynn is a known Trump ally and he's someone who has been kind of persecuted by the regime. Uh, throughout the Trump presidency, uh, has barely managed to get by, has kind of said Q-adjacent things in the past. And his only statement on what happened on, on last Wednesday was, uh, you know, go home and, and be peaceful and we respect our law enforcement and so on. It was a sort of the same kind of statement that you would see from uh, any number of other establishment figures I mean, he wasn't decrying it as a temple of democracy or whatever, but he was he was telling people to be peaceful and so on. And he got banned, right? There's no reason that anyone felt the need to give here, except that implicitly he was a Trump ally. There's nothing he said that, that um, sort of in the content of what he said should have gotten him banned. And yet, again... It's, it's, as you say, the friend-enemy distinction, right? He's a known friend of Trump's, an enemy of the regime's, and so he has to go. And so things really do um, do get into that 
it, it sort of it sort of puts the lie in a lot of ways to to this this Ben Shapiro turning point style of debate in which you're you're trying to catch people up on violating their own principles rhetorically and this always seemed like bullshit because it was always people always sensed that it was hollow in the end that, that when it came down to it this was not what mattered but I think we're really seeing that now where the content of one's speech is not even what's relevant um, at all. Like that is that is totally disappearing. It's are you a regime friend or a regime enemy? And this this can be deduced regardless of what you say in any particular instance. Yes, exactly. And I feel um, there there's this one thread that you had uh, a while ago that I thought was was really good. I think it was tied to the um, to Facebook banning one of the the Weinstein brothers, and then I think Eric Weinstein was. Ah, uh, yes, the Articles of Unity. That's right. Yeah, she jumped into and said, "We need a podcast. We need an emergency podcast with, I guess, I don't know, Zuckerberg, uh, to to you know yeah. sort this out, you know." And I, I, you had an extraordinary thread about it, and it was just you know just laying out uh, the the complete ignorance, you know, just you know this this little podcaster staring at the the cliff face of power and knocking on it, saying, "Where's my podcast?" Um, <laughs> I mean, the idea that that this is a way to solve the problems. Only response, right? Mm -hmm. That the only possible response would be you've banned our articles of unity account. You know, and this isn't even I mean, this is all this was always this romantic thing, right? That the Weinstein brothers have this thing where well we're we're the opponents of the regime, but we're not going to embrace Trump. We're going to kind of do our own thing and we're going to try and draft a third party run from, you know, whomever, Kanye West, Andrew Yang, whatever. Not that Andrew Yang was ever going to answer their calls. I mean, Andrew Yang actually understands how power works, and his his grift is is going along with the Democratic Party, and the Weinstein's grift is 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 playing this kind of role as the romantic opposition, the loyal opposition. Um, but to what degree do they believe it? I mean, I think that I think that the Weinstein's are actually somewhat sincere. Um, but naive, it's a little bit hard and it doesn't ultimately matter that much, except when you're kind of trying to determine whether a person can be reasoned with or not, or whether they're being malicious, but it's just, it is absurd. It's this absurd romanticism to imagine that you're going to solve these problems by having another podcast conversation with Jack Dorsey. I mean, Joe Rogan is a great node of sort of independent narrative power in the same way that people like Kanye West and Elon Musk and PewDiePie and um, any number of other people, right? I mean, those are, those are good examples. These are all nodes of kind of, they are power, they're visible as power, they have influence, they have narrative influence, and they are outside of the control of the regime directly, although they can be sort of pushed in one direction or another, and if they went too far, then they would, they would be on person. Um, but let's not overstate the power there, right? You can get Jack Dorsey on a podcast with Joe Rogan to kind of promote the idea that he is a honest interlocutor and have him talk with Tim Pool. But the forces at work here are just much deeper than that. And conversations have sort of a limit to, to what they can change. I mean, they can perhaps change how people view things, but they don't change the array of institutional power. They don't change the um, incentive structures and just responding by, by complaining 
and saying, well, get on the phone with me and let's talk it out. It, it, it shows this, this, this naivety, right? It shows this romanticism, this hopeless romanticism that I think, and this is speculating, I think that perhaps they are somewhat addicted to and enamored with seeing themselves as, um, because the tragic romantic hero in, in myth is, is kind of a very appealing protagonist, perhaps, and ultimately wins out, uh, sometimes. Although to be a, a true tragic romantic hero, you have to perpetually lose. Um, but ultimately, whether they win or lose is not the point to them. I, I don't think that that's, that's how they get off in the end. They get off on the struggle, uh, and the losing struggle, in fact. And winning takes something else and something that might be a little bit less glamorous at the time. But yeah. it, it, I feel... it's just absurd to, to see. Yeah, it's 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 just I, I feel like they they don't they're not in a position where making the the you know, the intellectual leap, the cognitive jump to to facing what what power actually is is in their best interest. You know, they've they've built their their image as being you know the the perpetual centrist you know drifting with uh, on the back of Tulu straight straight uh, down to the left and um, you know they it's, it's I don't think it's in anyone's interest in the IDW to actually you know answer questions about the true nature of power and I don't think they will right. and, I, and I feel like a lot of people like you know essentially like me are peeling off from the IDW because of that it's like you get to a point where like I mean we've laughed about these these woke people for what the last five years so what now what what is the face of power what what actually happens right, right. here we have no answers to that so people are starting to look around you know they're they're reading the old books they're picking up their burnham to see what what what's actually going on here because there are no answers in the idw it's just podcasts upon podcasts re rehashing the same thing oh woke is bad okay why since when um what what's yeah. so yeah, bad about why, it that's why i kind of am so down on the idw and why i uh, you know, why I effort post, baby. <laughs> why I, why I write actually kind of long threads trying to actually criticize them in, in a serious way rather than just trying to sort of own them. I mean, we know the, we know the, uh, the progressives are absurd and really just mocking them and humiliating them is, is the right response. Um, we can talk about ideas in, in sort of a different context, but trying to engage with a certain type of person is, is absurd and everyone knows it. But someone like, something like the IDW is uh, a more kind of subtle issue because there is always sort of a point you get to in any movement where there's, there's the question of whether someone is a pipeline or whether they're a gatekeeper. And that's... Uh, bit of a subtle distinction right um and there's different sort of ways which you might tease that out but it's it's something which takes i think a more serious critique it's something which takes uh, a, a deeper look and it's it is it is appealing i mean I, I listen to, you know, the portal ever so often. I listen to Eric Weinstein's podcast, um, because it's not, it's not all lies, right? And he, he gets things in a way. And it's also important just as a tactical matter to sort of keep abreast of what, of what people are doing. But 
um, it's it's that sort of I think where where a we have more of a problem on our hands and b we have potentially more influence is kind of at the margins here. You're not going to appeal to uh, the regime, much less it's kind of bio Leninist foot soldiers, right? This is not this is not worth talking to. But but engaging with gatekeepers and trying to turn them into pipelines is uh, a worthwhile a worthwhile thing, I think, because it doesn't take that much, right? I mean, we've, we've, we had our own journeys to get here. I don't know exactly. I mean, I'd be interested in hearing, like, what, what were the leaps uh, that you went through in terms of going from, from vice to here? I mean, you see the lies initially, but then it takes sort of people to shepherd you along the path, right? There's things you believe now, which you would have found just beyond the pale, I assume, back in your vice days. And I can, I can say the same thing of myself, right? What was your path? Um, I I think like I I read the the blank slate actually like probably maybe ten years ago, yeah. and uh, that was probably the first domino for me. I was still you know a feminist maybe a few years after that, but it it became really hard to square. Um, because, you know, once, once you kind of confront yourself with nature and, you know, some, the, the inscrutability of, 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 you know, natural law, you, you can't really, you know, you can't really slap on social constructivism onto every, anything. So, um, and then I think more recently, maybe like three or four years ago, I somehow found Nick Land. And I think Nick Land was kind of the, the catalyst for me. Um, and then I just started reading widely, you know, Moldbug, you know, the, the NRX stuff. Um, and that was kind of the, the biggest pattern interrupter for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, even I'm kind of, I'm not saying that I'm past Moldbug. I'm definitely a big, a big fan, but I think, you know, I'm kind of now in a phase where, um, yeah, I'm still, I'm still grasping for, for what's, what's true, but I'm definitely, uh, quite, uh, red-pilled on, on certain things. Yeah, no, you know, it's interesting. I remember, I remember distinctly when I, when I, um, when I got into Moldbug, I remember distinctly feeling sort of very uncomfortable at first, not because, I mean, not because I felt that what he was saying was untrue. I mean, it was, it was uncomfortable because I felt that, what he was saying was true, but I also felt very strongly that um, I was not allowed to be reading him, much less acknowledging him. I, I kind of felt the the gaze of the regime on me, um, though that's not how I would have described it at the time. And I remember distinctly this moment reading his blog post, Why I Am Not a White Nationalist, and I felt this weight come off of my shoulders because I was like, I finally have permission to read this, right? Like I had such a strong sense of, of what, um, sort of the labels were, how, how one, uh, sort of gets tied to things and, and, and turned into just a forbidden thinker that way. And just seeing something like that, I mean, it's not something that I would really care about now because that label just seems so empty to me. Not because, not because I think someone like, I mean, I, you know, Richard Spencer is, is a, probably a Fed, but if not actually in the employ of the Feds, then a spiritual Fed because he is absolutely, um, feeding into the power of the regime. But, 
just because the way that this word is used, it has no content, right? And we can, we can both realize this now in terms of how the regime actually uses it. But at the time, and this is an important thing to remember when, when trying to talk to people who are uh, farther back along the path, is just how powerful these labels actually can be in kind of getting you to do the crime stuff, right? Because it was a very disturbing thing. And it's easy to forget that once you've, once you've made the full journey or, or much of the journey, it's easy to forget just how hard it is to actually read these things. Not because they're inscrutable, they're actually pretty easy reads as far as political philosophy goes. But in terms of being willing to keep reading them despite the strong sense that that you are already kind of a reprobate in uh, in society, in liberal history. You're on the wrong side of history just for just for scanning your eyes over the page. Yeah, absolutely. What was um, was that your your entryway into into this world as well? You know, I I got <laughs> I think I'm trying to remember where I got the link to Moldbug. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it was a very gradual journey, but I think that I got the, I think I first saw Moldbug because I saw um, Clark from Popat. Do you know, do you know Popat? Mm-mm. Popat is this, is this free speech uh, legal blog. And the guy who runs it is just, he's, he's gone completely insane. Trump, Trump totally just broke him psychologically and he is he's uh, you know i i do not and have not read that blog for a long time but he used to there's a guy um who used to blog at his blog who was called uh, clark and went by clark hat because everyone on that blog has hat at the end of their um you know handle or, or whatever and clark was talking talking about Moldbug, and I think that that is where I first got the link to at least start reading him seriously, even if, I, even if I'd heard him before. But this is, you know, a liberal free speech blog. Now, I was, I was ready for it at that moment because I'd been primed by a lot of other things, so it was kind of, it wasn't this, ha- I, I think I would have run into uh, NRX one way or the other, um, even if I hadn't seen that link. But that is, it, it was a distinct moment because I do remember the sort of emotional valence of feeling something was forbidden and feeling that I was being kind of inexorably drawn toward it despite my best, uh, <laughs> you know, despite my best intentions, perhaps. I mean, you read this stuff and Moldbuck does straight up say, you're going to read this and you're not going to be able to see things um, the same way afterward. and. Uh, that's not necessarily a good thing either. You might not want to. I mean, things might be easier if you stayed away. That was why his bread pill analogy in the first place was actually such a such a deep one, is because in the Matrix, you know, some of us some of us like steak. Some of us would like to go back and 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 taste steak again and uh, forget that it's all just numbers. Would you like um, to go back? That scene, that scene with Cipher and Agent Smith is, uh, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, I, I go, I watch it on YouTube occasionally just because it, 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 it expresses something very deep. 
you know, I'll, I'll tell people occasionally when I see these things, I mistake. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you miss it enough to, to wish you had taken the blue pill? Um, I think it's too early to tell, maybe. I think that's, uh, as, as was said of the French Revolution, whether it was a good or a bad thing, it's too early to tell. <laughs> I think a lot depends on how history ends up going. It might be that um, being aware of these ideas is, in the long run, um, a good thing, uh, just for the sake of survival, even. Um, but we'll see. I mean, I I think that I think that I'm glad I did because I think that for me in particular and someone with my kind of psychological tendencies, maybe I already felt the discomfort um, beforehand. I already felt like something was wrong. I knew something was wrong for a long time intuitively, even if I had no idea how to articulate it or even locate where it was wrong in particular. Um, and so there was actually a great catharsis in being able to kind of learn how to articulate that and make sense of the world. And I think in retrospect, that's something I'm happy about because I think the discomfort existed prior to uh, taking the, the metaphorical red pill. So the pain, uh, the pain that, that it supposedly brings along was not um, something that came entirely afterward. Uh, and, and this, you know, this was before things got crazy. I think you look at, you look at what's going on now and you look at what you're being told to believe. And I think that for certain, for certain people, uh, probably yourself and myself included and many others who we talk with, this, this just was going, this was an inevitable journey. Uh, some combination of psychological traits, right, that just allow you to uh, be disagreeable enough to smell bullshit and um, not be able to go right back into believing it. So I'm happy, but for the average person, I don't know. It's not, it's not a pretty picture, let's put it that way. But it's also one which uh, explains things a lot more clearly than you know, if you if you have to believe one day that all cops are bastards and the next day you have to be signing a petition asking for Biden to give one a Congressional Medal of Freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the the dissonance. I mean, are you are you happy? Um, am I happy? It's too soon to tell. <laughs> I mean I'm I, I feel happy. I feel I feel like, you know, it's it gives me a perspective on things that's that has so much more explanatory power than any other uh, lens. Is it the ultimate lens? Probably not. You know, I've I've, I've cycled through a few lenses, as, as I'm sure people who listen to this podcast already know. Um, but I think that's that's probably one thing I've always wanted to do. I mean, I've always done is to f try to you know try to get as close to to the nature of reality as I could. Um, and yeah. I mean that fateful day when I when I crossed paths with, with Nick Land and then with Voldbug was um, quite a quite a shocker and yeah I was I mean I, I was will, looking for it you know I will say this um, I think that I think that getting into the broader sphere that we're in 
uh, I think it was good in in terms of just a lot of basic lifestyle things. I think, you know, whether you're the, the political philosophy side of it is good from the perspective of someone who's sort of feels the innate need to explain the world, right? But there's so much else that is, I mean, just something like, like committing oneself to exercising all the time, right? This was something which I was kind of vaguely interested in before, but was something which I was, I, I'd never devoted that much time to or even felt like was that important. But getting into this whole sphere, um, got me to really take this seriously and, and center life as, if not, if not as, um, if it's nothing else, just as a source of discipline and structure in life. Like I, I look back on, on where I was, um, so many years ago and it was just this very dissolute lifestyle. And when you're in sort of, for lack of a better word, right? The sort of vice mentality, right? I mean, literally the, I mean, that's, that's a great name for it because that's what it is, right? Like it's this idea that vice and not virtue is actually perfectly fine. And being a dissolute person is, um, is okay. And that sort of the values that, that label something as a vice, uh, versus a virtue or fake anyway. Um, but this isn't true. And you can feel that it's not true when, when you're on either side of it. I think that you know, when you're, when you're doing all of this degenerate shit, you know that it's fucking you up in a certain way and you can feel it. You feel that you're not reaching your full potential. Not to say it's not fun, not to say it doesn't have an appeal. I mean, it does. That's why it's dangerous, right? Like there's a lot of stuff about it. And I can't honestly say that looking back on the times when I was a dissolute degenerate, I don't have a certain nostalgia for it. Uh, I had great times when I was, when I was, when I was there in life. Um, I'm not going to forswear all of that. Um, life is complicated, but you just don't have people telling you to reach your full potential when you're there. And, and when you come over to this side, you do, and they, they tell you how to do it. They tell you to do it and they insist that you do it. And, and they tell you how to do it as well. And they say the path has always been there. People know what it is. We're going to support you in doing it. We're going to encourage you to do it. And you're not going at it alone. And in that respect, it's been um, unequivocally good for my life. And this is something that, that, that I say about even, even about Twitter, right? People will ask, has Twitter been a net positive for your life? And um, it's true that I spend a huge amount of time there. And I spent a huge amount of time there even when I was a lurker. And no doubt that has been uh, a drag in certain respects. I'm, I'm sure I've wasted plenty of time that, that I could have put more productively to other things. But the things that you gain just from having a community of people who are actually trying to um, get you to become a better person in very basic ways is, I think, uh, just is priceless. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I I have to say, I mean, I haven't been on Twitter for that long, but yeah, I can I can definitely echo that. You know, it's it's definitely been a net positive from from that perspective for me. And yeah, just you know, getting to talk to people. That's I mean, that's why I'm doing this podcast. And um, you know, people who who you know have a have a sense you know of what's going on and um, that you know maybe I'm in an echo chamber. I'm sure I am in in certain ways, but um, you know the just i think it's it's just so refreshing to have sober analysis in the world that just looks like this you know where where my spidey senses are tingling constantly and if i didn't have an explanatory lens on this i would just be going nuts you know cuz like you said you know i'm i'm just set up to be questioning stuff i'm just you know you know i i smell bullshit a mile away and you know if if there's no there's no way of explaining it it's just it's maddening and i feel like you know i'm sure that i'm not the only one um and you know at least you know the people that i talk to on twitter yeah they they see it too they see it too man and um well, let me give a let me give a little little anecdote here um cuz i know your first your first guest was was uh rocco right yeah of of the basilisk yeah of the basilisk fame and he, um, the other day, last week, he posted about deleting his Steam account um, and getting rid of all the video games. And he basically, I think this was a New Year's resolution or, or something around then, he basically said, I'm not going to be playing video games anymore. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, he linked to my account and he said, I, I did this thanks to, to one of Quamari's threats, right? He convinced me to do this. And... I was, I mean, this was just an amazing moment for me because I was thinking to myself, like, this is a, this is a serious guy. I mean, he's a incredibly intelligent guy, probably a lot smarter than I am. Um, and has had, I mean, if you think about how many people in the 21st century can honestly attest to, I mean, Rocco's Basilisk, right? This is a famous, famous thing. Yeah. Uh, there's people who who are serious academics, scores of them, who spend their entire lives um, working away at philosophy or or mathematics or whatever, and never uh, never come up with a concept as influential as that. Even if people don't take it seriously or do take it seriously or whatever, um, I mean that's that's an amazing thing. I mean. Rocco is the <laughs> Rocco is the reason why Elon Musk and Grimes are together. Did you know this? Yeah, I've I've heard there was uh, there was something um, in, like a pickup line or something. I, I love it in a yeah, way. It, she yeah. had she had uh, posted like Rock Rococo, a Rococo's Basilisk. It was like a pun, like the Rococo art um, uh, movement or style. And Elon Musk saw this somewhere and fucking dm'd her or something and and so like the the reason that they're together and have like a kid is because Rocco came up with this idea i mean that's who knows maybe maybe in the long run that will be its uh its most influential results depending on depending on whether their child ultimately becomes the emperor of mankind or something but but we'll see i mean but you know Rocco is a very a very serious guy a very intelligent guy and it was just so inspiring to me to hear so so gratifying to me to hear that that something that I had said about sort of just basic advice there was something that he'd taken to heart. 
And, you know, I, I, I play around with video games every so often, and there's one or two that I think are good. But just in general, I mean, I think that's right. They are a big time sink, and that ultimately there's something one has to give up and you know, able to realize one's full potential. But this is sort of a microcosm of, of what I'm talking about in terms of how this has been sort of a positive in my life. This was a way which um, I guess I was able to dispense something useful into the world, but uh, I've, I've taken much more in than, than I've, um, you know, been able to, to give so far in terms of advice. And I, I think that's just very gratifying. And this is, you, you talked about Nick Land. I mean, this gets back to, I think, sort of certain basic philosophy that goes around in this sphere, the idea of non, right? Nature and nature's God. That you have to be in touch with the territory at a certain point. That no matter what sort of pretty fictions you convince yourself of, nature is unforgiving and the territory exists whether you like it or not, so you best get yourself an accurate map if you want to survive, much less flourish. And we live in a time where people just are not giving out accurate maps. Um, they're telling people lies and you can see it and you can see it with a cursory glance online that there are just endless numbers of depressed people, young people without, um, without guidance who are suffering constantly daily because they've convinced themselves that the world is one way when it's not. And they're acting as if that's the case. And they're constantly stumbling into pitfalls and, um, dealing with people under certain assumptions that, that are just false and convincing themselves of all sorts of things that just lead to pitiful lives. And you know it just by looking at them. I was talking with a guy the other day who um, <laughs> was posting about how he had forgotten to eat all day. Um, now, you know, that's funny in a certain way, but this was clearly part of part of a much sort of larger complex of, of bad life decisions that he had as a result of kind of having fully embraced this progressive mindset. And it's just not a guide to living in living in the world. It's not a guide to success. And the sooner you can snap out of it, the better you're go better off you're going to be as long as you can handle it and you don't go fucking insane. A few people go insane. Uh, and that's not good. Don't go insane. Yeah. We, we should try to provide a voice for people to, uh, to follow so they don't go insane because God knows uh, some people go insane. Yeah, I think, you know, too, too many, too many red pills all at once do, does kind of create this, um, kind of fracture. You can overdose. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, I mean, I'm at the point where I just, I barely can watch television anymore. You know, I try to, try to watch a movie with my husband and I'm just like, you know, just cringing my way through everything and just like, it's, you know, I mean, this is, this is, you know, obviously the least of it and it's obviously not, you know, I'm not at insane level with it, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it does, you know, the fracturing between base reality and hyper reality really just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, living in the pod, <laughs> it's, I don't get to, I don't get to interact with it outside of the internet that much. I do, I do want to ask, this is a, this is a topic change, but I did, I did want to 
ask you a question, but I'm just I'm just sort of interested in in how how you respond to this, um, which is which is just what how you kind of conceptualize the experience of of being um, not just a woman, but sort of a a public facing woman, you know, someone out there with their face and their real name and stuff, especially in this sphere. Um, not in terms of like talking about all the abuse you receive and that kind of thing, you know, that's not, that's not really the narrative I'm looking for. I mean, more like once you've kind of ingested all of, all of these ideas, um, and then you go forward with that, how do you, how do you see your role? Who are you trying to speak to? And how do you um, modulate how you present yourself with all of those considerations in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's still you know a, a work in progress. I mean, I kind of officially joined Twitter probably like at the end of August. You know, it's it's all kind of come at me pretty fast. Um, I I I enjoy the fact that you know I'm you know I'm popular, but. It's, I have to say, it's, you know, the, my plan is, I don't really have a manifesto or anything. I just kind of want to write about stuff that interests me and then talk to people that also have interesting stuff to say. Um, there's not much more to it. Obviously, I know I should be, you know, very, cons you know, consider my every move, uh, carefully, uh, because it is a, it is a touchy <clears throat> space, but, at the same time, I mean, I, I live in Romania. I'm, you know, just like in a way, I am, I am off the grid. Um, yeah. I, you know, the, who do I talk to? Whoever wants to listen. I don't know. I don't. I don't really. I don't really have a persona. I, I would probably say the average person who does listen to me is probably male. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, that's you know, that's kind of skewed by the fact that you know i'm i'm a you know face fag lady <laughs> and also a um you know it's it's right. the space already is this skews heavily male um so yeah i mean um don't i, just, I don't really, i wish i had a better a better explanation for this but i don't i mean do you do you have a lot of do you have a lot of orbiters do i have a lot of orbiters um you mean people who comment on every post i do or... Yeah, I mean, either comment on every post you do, or comment on a lot of posts you do, or just um, who, when they interact with you, you you sense that they're doing so. You know, you see you see these people do it with streamers and so on. You know, not to even bring up fucking I don't know OnlyFans hoes and stuff, right? Like where it's this kind of they. I mean, parasociality is is something which infects kind of all online relationships to some degree, but it has a different quality and a recognizable quality when it's sort of a man orbiting a woman, I think. And you're able to sense that at least a lot of the time in, in how the interaction goes. And I'm just wondering if that's something you've you've seen or sensed. Yeah, yeah, I mean... You know, I don't, I don't want to be <laughs> calling people up, but there are, you know, I have some, some people who are replying, you know, very consistently and they always have to have something to say. And, you know, 
it's but I, w- I would say it's probably just a, a handful of people i think the the number of orbiters i have is probably proportional to the number of you know vish virulent haters that i have as well so yeah i don't i don't know i was probably not as much as as other other e-girls um but yeah it's not it's not a very significant phenomenon to be honest yeah maybe i would say you know i could count them on both my finger by hands so yeah maybe under 10 wow okay that's that's interesting yeah it's yeah. just it's it's a um it's something which i have no experience with um in part because i'm presenting as male but i'm also just anonymous so there's kind of two layers there uh but that's that's always something i'm fascinated with because it's it's interesting right how that would would inform one's presentation i mean my account has grown quite a bit over the course of the past year and trying to sort of navigate and you know even even at that point it's not even half as half as big as yours right and and neither of us are even at the scale of like people with 100,000 followers or a million followers but even at even at the scale that that we're at where we're talking about several thousand people maybe having a little bit of influence within a certain some sort of small corner of twitter there is this sort of question of how to navigate one's one's influence such as it is how you end up having to kind of adjust the way you speak given the knowledge that there are people who follow you who are people with large platforms you know blue check types who might occasionally even retweet you or engage and there's i think a certain discomfort there right um people also start looking to you for for dispensing serious advice they ask you questions occasionally they'll 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 come into the dms and they'll start talking about problems they have and i mean i'm not i'm not complaining about that and i i try to address people and give them a lot of time when i can uh and i i find it flattering to be honest but it's it's an interesting dynamic yeah i think you know there's uh there's some responsibility that comes with this I feel like, you know, this has come at me pretty, pretty fast. Um, I, you know, I've never really considered a Twitter etiquette or any, anything. I just kind of, you know, if someone sends me a DM asking me a question, I try to, you know, answer it, just prefacing it by, I'm not an expert, but, you know, this is what I do. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, your position on this might be a bit different because you kind of, you understand the medium so much better. I'm just kind of showing up and, you know, saying what's on my mind a bit, you know, um, yeah, in a bit of a headless fashion. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you've you been around, you know, like you said, you've, you've been a lurker, you, you have a feeling for the medium. So um, to me, this is all kind of new ground. Uh, you know, I've grown quite, quite fast and quite surprisingly and um you know i'm I'm using this now to to you know have conversations like this with people i find interesting and it's all it's all you know exciting and great um but there might be you know pitfalls or nuances or or things that are not even registering on my radar to be honest that i might just you know either dispense with or just not consider at all um yeah i don't know i might i might need to to appeal to some some more 
you know, experienced users of the platform to, to ask them what I'm doing wrong here. Um, maybe, maybe not being anonymous was my first uh, misstep, but I guess this is something I can't really walk back at this point. We'll just have well, to see. Well, you know, not being not being anonymous, uh, not being anonymous probably helps with the initial growth. <laughs> I'll put it yeah, that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. But um, in the long run, yeah, I mean, being being off grid is good. But you know, there's also, uh, I wonder. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to be doxxed in the end. Obviously, that would be bad. I say anonymous for reason. I try to separate it from my personal life. If only just to compartmentalize, but um, I think that there's a lot of stuff which one can say, and it's edgy in a way. But um, I don't know. I think it's defensible. I think that maybe this is a sign of some amount of success. But um, I feel like most of what I say, I I would be comfortable to defend in real life. Um, I don't think it's that crazy. Maybe that's just maybe that's just the fact that we're so far gone that um, that things seem normal to us, which are just beyond the pale uh, in real life, and and that uh, certainly could be the case. Things might be drifting farther and farther to the left, even as we speak, and even having very normal opinions gets you completely unpersoned. But honestly. Um, it's just so liberating, right? It's just so liberating to be able to have this community where people are able to just sort of talk things out frankly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, I've, I've I was considering, you know, I was thinking about being a public person and putting myself out there for a while. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I I could have been on on platforms and, and doing this stuff for a long time, but I've kind of been, you know. I, I kind of know what the risks are, but in this year I was just like, you know, why not? Fuck it. <laughs> do you have a, um, do you have, yeah, well, I mean, during Corona and stuff, that's, that was a good sort of opportunity, I think. Yeah. Because um, there wasn't, there wasn't all that much, the opportunity costs were certainly lower to, to trying to build something on the internet, I think, for sure. Um, but do you have an end goal in mind here? I mean, do you have sort of a, a vision of what you're trying to do? Uh, I don't know, have a, I don't know, reasonably successful podcast, talk to, you know, cool people, you know, figure out stuff for myself. I don't know. I mean, what, what would a good end goal be? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I'm just there's kinda... always, you know, you could, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how far gone you have to be before, before it stops being an option. I think certainly many uh, orders of magnitude farther gone than you are but there's always the um there's always the cashing out option where you uh, go back to vice or some other mainstream magazine and talk about your your years-long investigative journey into the alt-right or whatever you want to call it no um, way <laughs> yeah i don't know there's just there's nothing nothing in this world is that precious to me there's just no amount of money that would make me do that it's just, yeah, I see some people, I've, I've seen that before, and it's, oh my god, it's it's just absolutely disgusting. Um, yeah, I don't I know. I think that's the most dis disheartening thing is when that happens. I think that's that's far more disheartening than, um, well, I don't know. But it's, it's, it's hard, I think, to, 
Because because once you're here, I think the reason is because you you feel like you feel the truth of things and the bones. I mean, it's just it's 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 very difficult to it's hard to even say how you would go back to thinking the way one did before. It just tends to be a sort of a one way pipeline. There's not the drift in the other direction um, at any kind of sort of equivalent level. It it, it is always in one direction. Um, except for when someone basically does something for more mercenary motivations. But it's it's very rarely, if ever, because they've had an honest change of heart that makes them go back to looking at the world in sort of the way that a progressive does. Yeah, um, no, they just missed a stake, you know, that's, and they, they get scared of, you know, of, of whatever they've been threatened with. And then they're like, oh, there's, you know, there's both a carrot and a stick on the other end of that. And they just jump at that, I guess. Yeah. No, it's, um, but that's, I mean, certainly, certainly among anonymous people. I mean, that's, that's, of course, why people are trying to stay anonymous. I think there is this, there's this illusion of, of, of symmetry that emerges from, um, institutional power being able to breathe down your neck and influence you in, in other ways but it takes people who are off grid and in one form or another whether that means being anonymous or whether that means being you know independently wealthy or whether that means uh just being sort of outside the reach of the american global homo empire um or at least more tenuously within reach than someone who's right at the heart of it yeah, exactly. I think, you know, that's that's probably one of my, uh, you know, the aces up my sleeve. I'm, I'm very much at the periphery of the empire. Um, but at the same time, you know, essentially wanting to be closer to, to that, you know, visceral truth is why I've kind of made the jump and just said, okay, whatever, I'm just going to... I'm just going to be out there because I, you know, I, I was working in kind of like tech adjacent spaces, you know, in London for... Uh, a few years and it's just it's it's just you know just having to be that person is really soul destroying and it's just it just wasn't me and you know this is probably the only place where I can you know just be myself and you know if if this is it was, gonna... it was ideologically demanding yeah it it was I mean it's, it's it's quite a monoculture and I'm sure there are people who are thinking the same exact thing as me while there I mean I know a few of them who just like either read my blog or something or they were whispering like yeah man you know good going but you know I couldn't say what you're saying um, and I was only saying it on my blog I wasn't really discussing it in in you know public um, and you know outside of those you know silent nods and you know winks occasionally that that was it the rest of it was all like about i don't know female vcs and just like this is just tedious tedious neoliberal woke capital shit that you had to you had to play along with because that was you know and it was ratcheting up every year and i was you know it's just yeah it's it's just not me i i can't i can't do this well that's uh probably just going to get more and more insane and maybe we'll uh get get some new friends out of it at the very least yeah, I mean that's. I that's... can't imagine that anyone, anyone in this past week has. Uh, I think I think there's probably been quite a shift toward toward where we're at. I would I would have to guess. 
I hope so. I mean, I, I hear people, you know, kind of raising their eyebrows about the, you know, the Trump ban and they're like, oh, that's just quite extreme. But, you know, I hope it's enough to, to kind of nudge them into this direction. Um, yeah, but, you know, every little helps, you know, every little nudge into, into reality is, is, you know, is, is a good thing. Um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough one. Um, but yeah, I think we're, I think, you know, this week, this week's been good. <laughs> this week's been good considering. Yeah, I said, I said I was optimistic at the beginning, but I, I forget whether you laid out, say, uh, a response to it one way or the other on, in terms of sort of just sort of an emotional reaction. Um, when you saw what happened on Wednesday, what, 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 what did you feel? I mean, my, my instant reaction and, was and then afterward. Yeah, it was fear. I was like, Oh my God, this like, you could see just the, 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 the gears of power spinning in real time. And I was like, shit, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the world is, is quite, you know, I, I knew the world was like this, but, you know, man, you know, this is this is very, very obvious what's going on. Um, and then essentially kind of I kind of took this kind of mold buggy and perspective a little bit, you know, like being being in history rather than participating in history. And um, and then I was I just I started thinking practical thoughts like, you know, hmm, so what do I do with this? You know, just kind of doing scenario planning. Um, but yeah, I mean, there I think I think my problem is I'm a little bit black pilled on the and the idea that people are going to wake up to this. I've just seen people go through wave and wave, wave upon wave of of, you know, like these lockdowns, you know, what's going on with COVID, all of this stuff. And people are just either just bending the knee harder and harder every day. And, you know, that that's why, you know, I, I, I am kind of optimistic. Part of me is optimistic, but also at the same time, I just have this fear that, you know, this is, this is just a beginning and who knows when, you know, when people are going to snap out of it, if they will, I don't know, maybe just too well, much. It's, it's true, right? It's true. It's true that people do bend the knee. I think the hope is that, uh, I mean, ingesting one other, one other, um, point from perhaps NRX level thinking is that you don't need to convince that many people. You just need to convince a small number of elites. And if they see what's up, uh, the rest of society will eventually follow. Um, Kind of a Silicon Valley style thinking in a certain certain sense. According to power laws, right? You get a lot more out of the first one percent of people you convince as long as it's the right one percent. And if any if anyone is I mean there's there's the it's a little bit of a question as to whether this is more convincing and more awakening to the proles than it is to the elites. I mean the elites are perhaps more incentivized to believe in the regime than ever, but you also hope that um, among truly smart, truly talented people, uh, some number are going to going to realize just what they're looking at, and that's I think the hopeful part. Obviously, most people are going to believe whatever they're told, but who's telling them that? That's where that's where we have hope. But but generally speaking, yes, I'm optimistic right now. But but I I, I understand what you were saying about the fear. I think I think it was. It's a very Landian feeling. It was fear and it was beauty at the same time. It was the, the, 
the vertigo of having pierced the veil of the narrative veil and just kind of looking into this endless abyss of of reality now that kind of a consensus has been shattered looking at crowds of people on the on the steps of the american capitol smashing the windows and all of a sudden realizing that there is no safety net yeah right that 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 the reality you were accustomed to is 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 gone and just that's more more than anything what it was like the experience of standing at the top of a very tall mountain and gazing out across just a vast space which you are all of a sudden deeply aware that you could be pushed into at any moment exactly and also the the uncanny feeling that you know we were right you know this is this is a this this you know take any you know fairly extreme nrx poster and and look at what they what they were predicting i mean this is about about as uh, within the parameters of that you know the 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 face of power is the one that we have drawn that you know has been is the one discussed in in our circles and sometimes you know the 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 most terrible thing you can find out is that you were right all along and i think that was to me the the most black pulling vibe i was like man i didn't want to be this right um and yeah that was um an an interesting experience to have i mean i've 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 chilled out a bit after that but still you know and also seeing seeing just, yeah. just people being you know unpersoned you know in real time like um my my friend indian bronson you know i've had i've recorded a podcast with him as well he was you know um summarily uh dispatched as well and yeah do we know do we know what he was banned for i think he i mean he was he was quite uh he was quite opposed to what was going on yeah i mean i, I think if I recall. He, yeah, I think he he was just I think he was uh he was taken in for something with with hashtag stop the steal, but I think it was a joke. Um, so I think the hashtag stop the steal was was uh, his undoing, which I don't know. It's uh it's quite a yeah. It's, it, it definitely wasn't like a spicy take. It was like you know good going stop the steal or something. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think anything, anything, you know, that's essentially why I lock my account. Um, anything can do it. Um, uh, <laughs> that that was kind of the, the sad part of it. Right. No, no, I, I, I totally feel the same thing. I kept posting. Uh, I haven't locked up. I kind of, I think I would be somewhat sad if I got banned, maybe, but... It, it felt like a time to ride the tiger. But yeah, no, I mean, the feeling that we're right. Well, now the question is, who's right? Do we, do we get out of this painlessly as, uh, as Curtis Yarvin? Curtis Yarvin, the face poster, not the pseudonymous blogger, has uh, suggested. Um, which, you know, considering, considering, uh, how one interprets the writings with, with the knowledge that one is, one is, under the real name and one was one was written prior to that is um i'm not actually sure when when his identity became known but that's an interesting thought um or or is it as uh jim from jim blog says that we're going to actually end up in a hot civil war anyway within five or six years and and that unfortunately it's going to take a lot of bloodshed before we get back to anything normal 
That's yeah. that's the question at this point. But I think in in my mind, there's certainly fewer doubts that uh, the analysis has has proven better at predicting and explaining everything that's happened than than anything else available. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, and I think it's you know the... it doesn't take much. It takes a surprisingly small amount, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, people people get surprised occasionally. People are like, how how could anyone have foreseen? that Donald Trump would be banned. I mean, I I predicted that Trump would be banned the day of the inauguration. I predicted that Trump's account would be suspended at 12 o'clock p.m. on January 20th. And, you know, I guess I was off by a couple of weeks, not, not in the direction that I would have expected. But even getting a prediction that right and, um, you know, that was that was something that I think I was saying a year or two in advance, um, assuming that he'd lost the election, is, I think, testament to the power of just sort of certain basic uh, basic theories. I mean, just thinking in terms of slippery slope, not exactly the slippery slope, but the drift toward a leftist singularity, people people get surprised and and we're just sitting here like, well, this is uh, this is terrifying, but it's not exactly surprising. Exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's easier to to diagnose the, the present than to know exactly what's going to happen, especially if things escalate, because things are escalating as we speak. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, the pulse, you know, we've, we've, we have the pulse and it's kind of terrifying to, to be, you know, confirmed in the fact that we do have the pulse. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, could, it could be either of those of those directions. Um, yeah, I mean, but before we, we wrap this up, I want to ask you the, the show question. I have a show question, um, mm. and it is... Um, oh, I didn't know this. This is exciting. <laughs> um, it is, do you know any um, subversive thinker that is not well-known or that people might um, do well reading or, you know, might offer a, kind of a complementary lens to, to what we've been discussing or could be something completely, you know... Uh, yeah, that, that has nothing to do with what we've been discussing, but that, you know, is is a useful perspective that people don't know about. Few people read. You know, let me let me actually toss toss something very out of left field in here. And this is this is going to be a slightly tongue in cheek answer, but um, it's something which I've posted about before and I'm very consistent about. Uh, it's not it's not a thinker, but if you want, um, this is actually this is actually going to come as bad news to Roko because he just deleted his Steam library. But I want to suggest to everybody that they play the video game Star Wars: Knights of the Old Republic Two. Uh, I believe it came out in two thousand three or two thousand four, and uh, the gameplay is. Uh, a little bit, you know, it's, it's been patched. It, it was a little bit rough when it came out, but if you get it on Steam now and you have the restored content modification, uh, it, it won't be so rough. But the reason I suggest that is because, um, my unironic take is that this is one of the greatest, basically, pieces of, of liter literature of the 21st century so far. And I mean, it, it sounds silly to say, but, you almost never encounter anything of 
anything of value in a video game, but something that I just kind of want to promote um, as from from an artistic perspective is this video game. Uh, it is beautifully written and it has a lot of stuff which is not perhaps directly applicable to the political situation at hand, but which is a meditation on kind of the nature of power and history just, just on an aesthetic level that I think uh, I find myself drawn back to all the time in a way that no other video game has held my attention as I've grown into adulthood. This is the one thing. And and the 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 person who I would attribute that to is the is the writer of the video game, whose name is Chris Avalon. He's a video game writer. He's he's done the writing for various other ones, but I think this is his masterpiece. And he got me tooed over the summer also. So unfortunately I'm not sure if he's going to be involved in the production of that many others. Uh, he seemed to have some kind of, uh, he clearly uh, was not the most sort of socially adept person around at, at, at handling handling things. Uh, you can you can look up the Me Tooing if you want, and it's it's sort of sad and hilarious. But he's an incredible writer, and I think he's massively underappreciated because he's in an industry which rightly is thought of as not being true art most of the time, but he is the exception to that. So I would say Chris Avalon, as a writer in general, is underappreciated literary genius, and Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, the video game, is his masterpiece and is is worth a play for just just for the dialogue. Awesome. I like I like this recommendation. I mean, I'll, I'll have to look it up. But to be honest, I don't really play games. Um, yeah, I'm not very into video games. But everyone out there who is, please do check it out. I think you know, video games are definitely a, a medium that's, um, yeah, that's that's up and coming, guys. <laughs> this is this is a medium of the future. It's, so you... it's I I would I would recommend that nobody get too into video games. I think most video games are a waste of time. I've said this before. I think uh, certainly once you've grown out of young adulthood, you're you're basically devaluing yourself by spending too much time on them, unless you're with friends or, or doing something truly competitive. But this is a massive exception in my mind. Awesome, perfect. Well, on on that positive note and inspiring note, um, yeah, I let think... me uh, let me shill let me shill the book oh, right yes. before uh, right before we right before we go on. This is the other thing, which uh, is perhaps an underappreciated writing that everyone should check out, is uh, the new book out from Terror House Magazine, Terror House Publishing, uh, Ending Bigly, The Many Fates of Donald Trump. That is the name of the book. It is a collection of short stories by numerous authors, some of which you would have heard of, some of which you haven't, um, including myself. Um, Bronze Age Pervert, Landshark, uh, Mencius Moldbugman, uh, Bill Marchant. It is it is Bill Marchant's idea. He came up with the idea for the book, and he and uh, Matt Forney over at Terror House Magazine commissioned short stories from any number of people across the Twitter sphere um, in order to discuss the question of how Donald Trump would end, what would his ultimate fate be. And they put it together within the short span of one month in this anthology collection of short stories Ending Bigly, The Many Fates of Donald Trump, available in fine e-tailers, e-stores, web bookstores everywhere. 
uh, I suggest you check it out. It's It's got a lot of fun stuff in there. Excellent. Please buy um, the book. And also, I think it, uh, it features a story by Gio as well, no? It features a story by Gio. It features an essay by Gio. I oh, believe. nice. But yes, Gio, Gio as well. Gio, I, I'm sorry, Gio. Much love to you. I forgot, I forgot that you were in there, but uh, absolutely. Gio is a part of that as well, including <laughs> and many, many others. Perfect. So go to your e-tailer. Bye, bye, bye. It's it's currently the pinned tweet on my account. Perfect. Which is at check uh, it out at Kwamurai. That's Kwamurai. That's K W A M U R A I. But you can also find the book at Terror House Magazine. Perfect. And you should also follow Kwamurai for his his delightful effort posting, and his insights and his for um, for hot takes as well. But yeah, his 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 takes are. You know, are kind of outside from the from the perspective of history. They're they're evergreen, so you know they're hot, but they're they're also, you know, you know have that that glaciality of, of cosmic space uh, in in a good way. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and yeah, That's I shall. My, my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. Thank I hope you. to come back one day. Absolutely, absolutely. And I thank you for asking me questions because not many people do. I'm not very good at, at interviewing people, but you are. And I thank you for, for kind of reciprocating. I thought that was really cool. Of course. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. <laughs>